evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. Here are some of the stories that we're covering today across South Sudan this Tuesday, February 28, 2023. A South Sudanese-based energy company dismisses charges of corruption and bribery in a new report. Our attention has been drawn to the report by the Sentry, which unfortunately contains significant and defamatory allegations against our organization relating to activities from over four years ago. And Amnesty International joins the chorus of voices asking South Sudan to explain the whereabouts of a missing government critic. There is complicity between Kenyan security actors and um, South Sudanese security actors where they unlawfully just abduct people from Kenya, either from the camps, Takuman, so on, or from the city. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Trinity Energy, a private petroleum company operating in South Sudan, has dismissed findings in a new report by the Sentry accusing the company of benefiting from corrupt oil-related deals in South Sudan. The report details corrupt practices involving bribery, tax evasion, and trade-based money laundering worth millions of dollars, all with the backing of the South Sudan government. Trinity Energy says the report is filled with mere allegations aimed at defaming the company. Manyang David Mayar reports for VOA from Juba. The Sintry report, released late last week, details corrupt practices involving illegal business practices, including bribery, tax evasion, and trade-based money laundering, worth millions of dollars with the backing of the South Sudan government and prominent leaders in 2018. Reading from a prepared statement on Tuesday, Mariam Dangasuk, head of program management at Trinity Energy, told South Sudan in focus the accusations against her company are nothing more than allegations meant to tarnish the image of her company. Our attention has been drawn to the report by the Sentry, which unfortunately contains significant and defamatory allegations against our organization relating to activities from over four years ago. Trinity Energy would like to reassure the public and all our stakeholders that we remain committed to offering our customers world-class energy solutions. In a 100-page report, the Sintra said its three-year investigation uncovered, quote, red flags for illicit business practices, including bribery, tax evasion, and trade-based money laundering, end quote. Among other illicit business practices, the Sintra says Trinity Energy has spent millions of dollars on facilitation and business acquisition costs for the Afri-Exim Bank deal, including $125,000 in payments to the government's committee responsible for approving the deal. Dangasuk notes, Trinity Energy is a signatory to the United Nations Global Compact, which provides a universal language for corporate responsibility and a framework to guide all businesses. As a proud signatory to the United Nations Global Compact, we subscribe to the 10 principles on human rights, labor, environment, and anti-corruption, and remain dedicated to maintaining the trust of our customers, stakeholders, and the communities we serve. The Sintry recommends that the governments of the United States, those in the European Union, United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia, investigate themselves to see, quote, if there are appropriately sanctioned individual entities involved in corrupt oil deals in South Sudan. Dangasuk says 
Trinity Energy is working with its legal team to determine an appropriate course of action against the Sintre. We will not be commenting further on this matter at this time and are working with our legal teams to de- determine an appropriate course of action. According to the 2022 Corruption Perception Index, South Sudan was ranked the second most corrupt country in the world just after Somalia. The Corruption Perception Index ranks 180 countries and territories around the world annually based on their perceived levels of public sector corruption. The report says that most countries have failed to stop corruption, with 95% of them having made little to no progress since 2017. For VOA News, I'm David Mayor in Juba. The investigative group The Century accuses Trinity Energy of massive corruption involving a Cairo-based African Export-Import Bank as well as the government of South Sudan. The report says the arrangements center on a number of multi-million dollar loans in which Trinity bought diesel and gasoline and sold it in South Sudan in 2018, a practice which raised several red flags. My colleague John Tanza spoke in this first part of a three-part interview with Biswick Tia Malu Kazwaswa, a former employee of Trinity and a self-described whistleblower. There were a number of transactions laid flat to corrupt activities. There were a lot of dollars that were exchanged in the black market, and then there were some dollars that were exchanged by using fake invoices where the services were not supplied. And also, there were lots of intercompany transactions which were invoiced at higher values. There were supplies of fuel to the army at a price that was higher than the normal retail price. Then there were transactions that Trinity were involved with African Bank. You were saying that there were some transactions that were illegally. Yes. Someone would argue that, why are you speaking about it now? You should have spoken about it when you were there. I experienced a lot of things. Uh, I was uh, put in jail for 16 months, and the the intention was that I should not speak out about these activities. Uh, Fortunately enough, um, I was released using a normal court procedure. I was acquitted, and soon after my release, I thought that was a proper time for me to inform the world about the corrupt activities and the shadow deals that Trinity Energy was involved in. As an employee of Trinity Energy, you are in charge of finance. And did you question some of this, um, if you like, the procurement process that you were saying were fraudulent? Uh, as a chartered accountant and also an ex-auditor, having worked with the big four auditing firms in the world. One of the first things that I did when I got recruited and when I was in Juba was to review the internal control environment and the accounting policies and procedures that were in ground, on the ground. And soon after doing my evaluation, I issued a report to management, to the executive management, uh, directly to the chairman, through the chief executive officer, highlighting all the key risk areas. And while I was also there, I was questioning a lot of expenses because being a finance manager, my role was to review uh, the documentation supporting all the payments. 
And being a finance, a finance manager, I was supposed to be aware of all the transactions because I was the custodian of the financial statement. And it was my responsibility to report to the auditors. So I was questioning a lot of expenses. And if, uh, all those expenses that were not making sense, I was sitting down with the management and highlighting to them. Uh, one example that I'll give you is uh, there was a time that uh, Director Richard Raja was going to New York and he requested 25,000 US dollars for the trip to New York that would only last a week. And I asked this to say, what is the logic of going to New York with 25,000 US dollars cash? Uh, the answer from the group finance manager was, you should not ask, you should not query the director's expenses. So it was a process that was happening. And there were a number of payments that the company was making to government officials without any signature. And I sat down with management. I sat down with the, the chairman and informed him to say, wherever I'm coming from, where, wherever I've worked, I've not worked only in Malawi, but also overseas. If the government employees are involved in the activities of the company, I know for sure that they are supposed to sign. And I know for sure that they are targeted allowances. There are levels of allowances that each and every individual is entitled to. We discuss about this for a long period of time, but still a lot of still payments were done like that. They would come and put the payments without any signature, without any pay. That was Bismik Tiamalu Kaswaswa, a former employee of Trinity Energy, speaking with VOA's John Tanza. Tomorrow, in part two of the interview, Kaswaswa talks about the trouble he went through in Juba when he tried to speak out against corrupt deals and practices at Trinity. Amnesty International has joined the call for South Sudan to provide information on the fate and whereabouts of government critic Morris Mabior Awikjok Bak. According to Amnesty, Morris was abducted on February 4th from Kenya, where he resides, and forcefully returned to Juba. Last Friday, the Pan-African Lawyers Union petitioned the East African Court of Justice in Arusha, Tanzania, for South Sudan to provide clarification about Mabior. Donald Deya is chief executive officer of the Pan-African Lawyers Union, and he tells Daybreak Africa host James Buddy that the government should either charge Mabior with an internationally recognizable offense or release him immediately. There's this complicity between Kenyan security actors and um, South Sudanese security actors where they unlawfully just abduct people from Kenya, either from the camps, Kakuma and so on, or from the city, and they unlawfully send them into Juba and into certain torture and possible death. So it's a trend. There's a formal way of um, summoning people who are accused of having committed a criminal offense in one country and happen to be in another country. And it's called extradition. So they don't do this. They just abduct people and then people appear in Juba. So we're very upset about it. It's clearly a failure of the rule of law. They're violating both countries' constitutions, both countries' laws and international law. So it's about accountability, but in the short term, it's also about saving the life of this guy. Because if there's no international attention, international outcry, they'll just kill him. What do you think uh, the East African Court of Justice, I mean, what can that court do? The court can give orders. First, it can carry out an examination 
and it will force these two governments to actually have to come and defend themselves in court, so they can't just ignore it. And then the court can issue orders to the production of this guy, and the court can eventually give damages. You mentioned from the top a complicity between the Kenyan security forces and South Sudan. How do you know that? This uh, man, Morris, is a polygamist. He's got several wives. And one of his wives was in the house. She was in the house when this guy came for her husband. So they had been out and about. They had made overtures because one of the people he was criticizing very prominently is the head of internal security, General Akol Kor. So at some point, Akol tried to send out overtures. So they had made overtures to him the day before he disappeared using a mutual relative. So he was at home with his wife. And as he walked out of his house, within two minutes, within the compound, a whole bunch of anti-terrorism police unit officers then grab him. So they take him back home, confiscate his laptop, his phone, his wife's laptop, some documents and so on, and she was there. And then they went off with him. So we clearly can identify three people. The chief inspector was the head of the ATP unit, the deputy head of the police post who participated in the raid, and the immigration officer, the brother of General Akol, who accompanied them during the raid. So in addition to your demand from the South Sudan government in terms of the whereabouts of Maurice Mambio, have you been able to, or has anyone been able to have access to him? Nobody has had access to him. Because what a call does when they do this kind of thing, they deny that they have you. So what happens is with local corruption at low level with the guards who got the police, families can send messages to incarcerated people. So we've spoken to, and the family has spoken to a number of people who have confirmed that he's at the Blue House. And that is why we'll be seeking an urgent hearing in the course of this week, ex parte, so we get at least limited orders directed to these two governments to say where this person is, and at the very least to produce them before a medical facility of the family's choice for a medical checkup. That was Donald Deya, Chief Executive Officer of the Pan-African Lawyers Union. He was speaking with my colleague, James Buddy. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. Coming up, a democratic coalition in Sudan reaches an accord with a holdout group in Juba on the way forward. Find out more after this break. South Sudan in Focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. This is a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. The World Health Organization and Africa Center for Disease Control say we all can help fight the global pandemic by frequently washing our hands with soap and water or using hand sanitizers. For more information on protecting yourself and others, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa Center for Disease Control. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest on COVID-19. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. 
You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. The Forces for Freedom and Change Coalition, the democratic bloc that was part of the former Sudan transitional government until it was overthrown in 2021, and the holdout group Sudan People's Liberation Movement faction led by Abdul Aziz Al-Hilu, signed a joint political declaration in Juba last week. The two sides agreed on the need for a political consensus to enable the Sudanese people to form a civilian-led government in order to restore peace. The two parties agreed to a secular state while emphasizing at the same time that the role of religion in Sudanese society is important. Michael Atit has more for VOA from Khartoum. The draft political declaration was signed by Jafar al-Margani, head of the Forces for Freedom and Change Coalition, Sudan's Democratic Bloc, and Abdulaziz Adam al-Hilu, head of the SPLM North faction based in the Nuba Mountains. The declaration states the constitution should be based on separation of religion, while at the same time emphasizing the role of religion in the Sudanese society. The two sides agreed to restructure and modernize the Sudanese army according to a new military doctrine and to integrate the rapid support forces and other armed movements into one unified army. Al-Hilu told reporters in Juba yesterday the declaration is historic. In audio provided to this program by Al-Hadas TV channel, Al-Hilu says peace and stability is the ultimate goal. This is a great shift towards peace building and democratic transformation in Sudan. We regard this declaration as a big and historic struggle for the new Sudan. The SPLM North refused to sign the Juba peace deal in October 2020. The head of Democratic Bloc, Jafar al-Margani, says the declaration marks a new beginning for Sudan. This is a new page for political diversity in Sudan and a beginning of the inclusive platform for all Sudanese generally under this current. The Democratic Bloc rejected the December framework political agreement signed between Sudanese army leaders and the FFC. The parties that signed the declaration agreed on the need for political consensus to form a civilian-led government. Michael Atid for VOA News, Khartoum. Sudan's ruling military concluded a review of an agreement with Russia to build a Navy base in the strategic port Sudan on the Red Sea. Sudanese officials said Moscow has met Sudan's most recent demands, including more weapons and equipment. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the deal still needs ratification by Sudan's yet-to-be-formed legislative body. David DeRoche, professor at the Center for Strategic Studies of the National Defense University, discussed the strategic impact of this deal with VOA's senior analyst Mohammed El Shinawi. It's long been an ambition of Russia to have bases in the Red Sea, and Sudan would seem to be the most likely candidate as it had been the, you know, a very non-aligned country that also didn't have overly strong relations with the Gulf partners of the United States. But the initial Russian negotiations were concluded before Sudan joined the Abraham Accords. What I think we're seeing here is a long-standing Sudanese practice of trying to extract max goodies out of various partners. And here, I don't think the partner that they're going to extract things from is Russia. I think this is aimed at the United States and to a lesser extent, Israel. We've heard this story before. The issue is always 
you can make an agreement with the Sudanese leadership, but they say, well, it has to be ratified by our legislature. We don't have a legislature yet. That's a really good negotiating tactic because it allows Sudan to basically pocket concessions, pocket promises, and then see if they will be matched by the West. It's important to note that Sudan only came off of uh, terrorist sanctions, the support of sponsorship of terrorist sanctions as a result of signing the Abraham Accords. And if it develops a large naval base, it could be subject to CATSA sanctions. So Russian naval might in particular has been discredited in recent months. I mean, the Black Sea Fleet, which was the only fleet of the Russian Navy with a regular freshwater port, is combat ineffective. It's basically a virtual prisoner in Novorossiysk. It's had to abandon Crimea. So I don't think, and Russia's ability to produce advanced weapons is questionable. So I don't think this is a done deal. And I don't think this is as significant as Sergei Lavrov says it's going to be. He's announced that this deal has been concluded at least three times, but there's always the same obstacles. But what's the strategic impact of such an agreement as part of Moscow's efforts to restore regular naval presence in various parts of the globe? If it goes through, it will be a big strategic advancement for Russia. It won't be as big as the establishment of the port of Tartus, because Tartus, it's much easier, closer, can support 11 ships. What we're hearing of this agreement is it's a maximum of four ships, and the ability to support them from Port Sudan is limited just because it's more difficult for supplies to get in there. And the amount of basing presence allowed is relatively small. It's only 300 sailors. Uh, But it will be strategically significant. It will allow Russia to have a permanent presence in the Red Sea. The United States does not have basing facility in the Red Sea. We only have them on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, So it would be a major, major development. But again, it remains to be seen if it can happen. And it remains to be seen if Russia has the strategic resources, even if an agreement were concluded, if they have the weapons, the money, and the strategic depth to actually position ships in uh, Port Sudan. That was David DeRoche. He's professor at the Center for Strategic Studies of the National Defense University. He was speaking with VOA's Mohammed Al-Shinawi. Provisional results from Nigeria's disputed presidential election show Bola Tinubu from the ruling party in the lead, according to a Reuters tally of votes in 25 of the country's 36 states today. Electoral Commission results from the states showed Tinubu of the All Progressives Congress's Congress Party was ahead with about 36 percent or 7 million valid votes counted. Atiku Abubakar of the main opposition People's Democratic Party, or PDP, is trailing close close behind with 30% or just about 6 million valid votes. Businessman Peter Obi of the smaller Labor Party has so far received 20% or about 3.8 million votes. More results are expected to show the winner later today or tomorrow. The preliminary results were announced in the states by independent National Electoral Commission officers and will still have to be presented at the Commission's National Collation Center in the federal capital, Abuja.
Many South Sudanese say they are elated over the victory of South Sudan's men's basketball team. South Sudan on Friday became the first team in African basketball history to qualify for the FIBA Basketball World Cup in their first attempt. The South Sudan team beat Senegal 83-75, Egypt 97-77, and the DRC 101-58. One South Sudanese says the South Sudan's basketball team victory has created a sense of strong social bond and unity among South Sudanese. He says the team also has given the country a positive feeling. Dang Gai Jang reports for VOA from Boer. History is in the making. South Sudan will play in the FIBA Basketball World Cup Finals 2023 after securing the spot on Friday. Led by Nuni Omot's team high 26 points, South Sudan secured the 83-75 win over Senegal, which also ensured they would finish one of the top two teams in Group F. The South Sudan men's team will head to Japan, the Philippines and Indonesia to take part in the event. Juba resident Emmanuel Bida says the last win against Senegal filled him with joy and pride after watching the FIBA Basketball World Cup qualifying round. It was a moment of national unity and celebration with us coming together with friends to support the South Sudanese team in the tournament. The victory also served as a source of inspiration and motivation for young basketball players, including people in my family and friends, and also helped raise the profile of basketball in South Sudan. Bida says last week's victory means South Sudan has arrived. He expects the team will still perform high capacity during the next competition. The expectations of the South Sudanese team in the FIBA Basketball World Cup will be likely high, very, very high, given their impressive performance in the qualifying rounds. However, it will also be a very challenging competition, and the team will need to prepare well and work hard to perform at their best. The team has already made history by qualifying for the World Cup in their first attempt, and the country will undoubtedly be proud of their achievements, regardless of the outcome of the tournament. Juba resident Abraham McQueen Ayol says men's basketball team has painted a positive image of the South Sudan despite the five-year-long civil war, continued deadly violence in parts of the country and the ongoing economic crisis. The South Sudanese basketball team victory against their uh, the other teams uh, such as DRC, uh, Egypt, Senegal, and other countries is a great uh, or huge applaud to the team and uh, the team hard work and the dedication toward this process uh, made South Sudanese happy and feel grateful for their contributions. The country is very happy for this effort and will never forget uh, to support them in the FIBA World Cup that is going to come in August. Gola Boyoy Gola, president of South Sudan Youth Union, says he is overjoyed by the South Sudan men's basketball victory. Gola says it is more evidence that South Sudanese has the potential for greatness. It shows that we can actually be one nation, regardless of our tribes or our political differences. And that also shows that uh, sport can play a big role and in terms of uniting our nation. We know that the world uh, has divided us a lot, but I think with this, we are yet 
again to discover ourselves as one nation, one people. And that that's what makes some of us proud. I'm so happy for the win. Gola Heji South Sudanese officials to invest in this spot as one way to bring peace and unity among the country's people. South Sudan entered the African qualifiers game at Al Itihad Stadium in Alexandria, Egypt, with an 8 1 record. Knowing a single win from any of their three remaining games would be enough. In the game against Senegal, the two teams traded the lead for much of the game, with South Sudan ahead by one point at half time, with two time NBA All Star Lulding as interim coach and federation president. South Sudan believes it has more victories ahead in World Cup play. For VOA News, I am Dengai Deng in Bor. And that'll do it for us this Wednesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this broadcast, you can go to www.voaafrica.com backslash South Sudan. We leave you with the song Asagoro by MEJ. On behalf of our engineer, Atreus Regis, and producer, Kwame Afore, I am your host, Carol Van Dam, in Washington. Thanks for joining us today. Remember to tune in tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Sungo no yusa, 